Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, May 9th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Best-selling author John Meacham and NBC News host Willie Geist discuss what history can teach us about our current political climate. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, how are you? I'm Willie. It's to meet you. Hey, how are you? Thank you. Hi, guys. Thank you. No, no, no. No, no, no. I couldn't. I no, couldn't. after you. After you. No, I couldn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> good evening. How's everybody doing? Most important question. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, have my mom and dad arrived? They have. If not, I was going to stretch until they sat down. But Uncle Herb is not here, right? <laughs> no. Boy, how's, that's... Par- how's parole? <laughs> that's a long story about my mom's brother. <laughs> Happy birthday tomorrow, Dad. This is your gift. Great, Bill, guys. And happy Mother's Day next week. This is your gift, so please enjoy. That's right. Please enjoy. I demand a rain check now. <laughs> so uh, when John called me and asked me to do this, he's a dear friend of mine, the first thing I said was, John, how close is it to my apartment? Exactly. And yeah. <laughs> that's how I feel, strongly how I feel about John. And it was within 10 blocks, so like Shun Lee, I was willing to yeah. go. If and it had been 12, I would have had to charge you a little extra. But. No, I know. And if Joe lived a little closer, he'd be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always happy to be your backup plan, John. It's fantastic. We're really worried about Willie's career because, well, first of all, he, st- he went to Vanderbilt. Here we go. Because he couldn't. Yeah. Because he couldn't get into Sewanee, uh-huh. which was tricky. Uh, Sewanee, as you all may know, because you're in New York, so you, you know it well, but if you don't know it particularly well, it's best understood as a combination of Downton Abbey and Deliverance. <laughs> let you marinate in that for a minute. Exactly. Um, John, uh, it was nice to take time out of his busy television schedule. He's been on TV. I'm sure he's got to leave in the next 30 minutes. If There's you... an ATM camera I haven't been yes. on. The bodega. He's going to be on ATM. Robin Bird later tonight. Um, I love Robin Bird. It'd be a huge coup for you. The soul of America. <laughs> John also is a uh, an expert tennis player. I don't know how many of you know this. He uh, <clears throat> he plays in Bell Mead in a senior league. That's <laughs> that is it. Eighty and over, or is it? Look, they're really good. <laughs> they're really fit. Yeah, he's yeah. cruel. He drop shots all the time because they can't come in. He from can't. The baseline. Exactly. It's a sad. Exactly. It's a sad story. It really is. But enough about your deficiencies, John. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about your book instead. Um, the Soul of America, I checked before we came out, right at the top of the Amazon list, chasing Chip and Joanna Gaines. But who's going to beat Chip and Joanna Gaines? It's kind of terrible. When you've Thank got the Magnolia Table cookbook, you're a lock for number one. But I must say, I think that's good for America, that people are buying cookbooks instead of... I really do. I mean, it's, maybe they're... In the same way the band played Near My God to Thee uh, on the Titanic. At least... <laughs> Our last meal is going to be good. 
Um, so let's start. Thank you, John. Let's start with um, let's start with the title, yes, "The sir. Soul of America." You got it. Um, soul can be a sort of a nebulous term. What does it mean in this case? What is the soul of America? Well, it, it is nebulous, but it's ancient. Um, soul uh, for Socrates through Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas. It's like being on Morning Joe, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I got to tell you quickly. The other day. The other day... A, a, we're never uh, going to get to the book, by the no, way. No, no. <laughs> Just one more story. One yeah. more thing. Yeah. So we're sitting there, and the, the picture of VE Day flashes up. Mm. And I hear <laughs> Willie say, oh, Jesus, another Meacham setup. <laughs> you know, whenever you see a black and white picture, okay, John, what are your thoughts about it? He had a... By the way, he had a... I mean this totally sincerely, a Pavlovian reaction to the crackling audio of Harry S. Truman. <laughs> he was on his phone, and he went... <laughs> It's my turn. <laughs> and sure enough, That's right. John, what do you oh, think? Right. Day. So. On the 8th of May. Yes. Um, Soul of America. Soul of America. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was both a pagan concept and a philosophical concept, meaning essence or breath, meaning life. In the Phaedo, Socrates says, what is it that makes a man a man, as opposed to a beast? Or, um, sorry for the animal rights folks. Uh, but uh, and the answer is a soul. Uh, in Hebrew and in Greek, it means breath. Uh, when God breathes life into mankind in Genesis, the word could be translated as soul. When Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for a friend, life could be translated as soul. And so what I wanted to do was, this was born after Charlottesville. Uh, my friend, the great historian, I'm sure a lot of you all know Nancy Gibbs, who was running Time magazine at the time, uh, called and said, do you have something you want to say? And um, what I decided to do is try to look back at four or five moments where the politics of fear had been prevalent. Uh, moments like the 1920s when they put 50,000 Klansmen on Pennsylvania Avenue without masks, just marching along. Um, so the, the larger point being that just because something's happened before doesn't mean it's not happening now. But we also, we've overcome it, and we should not be endowing the problems of the moment with superpowers, as if somehow or another they're indestructible, because we can fight them, and there are lessons for that. Um, and so the soul, to my mind, was when people talk about it, they often mean, well, we, America needs to save its soul, as, as if in, by meaning that it should be doing whatever you think is right, is, is usually how you define that. But in point of fact, there's... A con- an eternal contention between light and dark and our best and worst, and there's room in the soul for the Klan and for Dr. King. And I- every given era is defined by to- the battle between those two and whether the better angels can win out, at least for a brief period of time. And it's, that's not, it's not sentimental. It's not a homily. It's not a Fourth of July oration a clinical examination of the past events that have produced the hours in which we live now show that there are moments where our more generous-spirited impulses can win out. Maybe not for long, and maybe not completely. But it has created a country where our immigration issue is that people want to come here. And I think, that's, I think we should bear that in mind. There's an instinct, I think, for every generation to think of their 
moment or their problems as unprecedented. Mm. It's the most overused word in the media and perhaps oh. in the country. Have we right ever now. seen this before? Have we ever seen this before is yeah. always the question yeah. because it's kind of easy to say, right? It's, yeah. It feels bad. There couldn't have been, have been anything worse. Put this, as you have the sort of long view of history, put this moment, the Trump era, we'll call it for now, in historical perspective. I think it's, <clears throat> I think in terms of a personality, this is most like the McCarthy era. Uh, and sometimes God gives you these things. Roy Cohn represented them both. It's amazing. Right? It's true. Yeah. No, seriously. So, and there's a great, if, if there are people out in, the, out in the audience looking for a project, we need a big, good biography of Roy Cohn right now. Um, and you could probably just do it as Trump and just change the name. It'll be fine. Um, so uh, I think that, because there you had a demagogic figure uh, with a kind of ethnic base, uh, folks who believe the world is being taken away from them, believe that elites were conspiring against them. Was there ever a better uh, boogeyman than Alger Hiss? straight out of central casting for McCarthy and Richard Nixon to take on. Um, not unlike sort of a globalist Hillary Clinton, in a way, for Trump to take on. You know, a kind of embodiment of, uh, of the forces that people believe were, cons- are, were and are conspiring against them to limit their prosperity, to change their culture, to take away a way of life. And that's a recurrent American theme starting in the 1790s. Uh, when John Adams passed the Alien and Sedition Acts so that a president could deport individuals that he chose to deport. And he could close down newspapers and printing presses with which he disagreed. John Adams didn't call it fake news, but that's what we're talking about. So to act as though this is unprecedented is, I think, a problem on two levels. One is nostalgia is a powerful narcotic. As you might imagine, I'm rather prone to it. Uh, uh, you know, it's not the only narcotic I like, but you know, it's it's, you know, really? it's right up. Yeah, it's right up there. To drill down on that one later. Yeah, Go that's ahead. all right. That's yeah. all right. Um, you should see the eighty-year-olds. <laughs> uh, uh, but it it does a disservice to the past. If you were John Lewis and you were sitting here and you heard, as Willie says, in the common conversation, you know what? Things have never been as bad as they are today. Oh, really? He nearly died in the streets of America 52 years ago, beaten by an official of the state of Alabama because he wanted to vote, because he wanted the 15th Amendment, which had been ratified and duly passed, to apply to him in the lifetime of, dare I say, virtually everyone in this room. So what, Trump tweeting is worse than Sheriff Jim Clark and his posse trying to kill John Lewis in the streets of Selma, Alabama? Really? Is that worse? Not saying it's not bad, but is it worse? I don't think so. In my native region, I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Within the la- within the lifetime of everyone here, almost, if you wanted to register to vote and you were an African American, you would show it. They usually opened the office for one hour a week, Wednesdays from four to five, something like that. And the registrar would put a box of soap, detergent, borax, something like that, on the desk and say, you can register to vote if you can tell me how many flakes of soap are in this box. Mm-hmm. Go read Lyndon Johnson's great, the great speech of March 15th, 1965, the We Shall Overcome speech. 
He describes the various difficult tests that registrars of the South put African Americans through. Lifetime, lifetime of, of everyone here. Functional apartheid. Marriage equality is not yet three years old. And, you know, there's, there's a glib talking point about no one's ever seen such rapid progress as on marriage equality and sexual identity rights. And you know what? Usually it's a heterosexual saying that it really move, is moving really fast. <laughs> <laughs> kind of interesting. I don't see a lot of, you know, gay folks saying, you know, we're really pleased that we've been accepted so quickly. <laughs> hmm. Don't really hear that. Um, Women have not voted for quite a century yet. 98 years. 98 years. So, pretty bad. And yet, we are in a better place today. We are, what we fought for is always fragile. You can't bank these advances. Yes, there are, there's backsliding. Yes, he's chipping away at the rule of law. I stipulate all of that. And my point is not, we've come through this before, so let's all relax. My point is, we've come through this before, so let's figure out how we came through it before and do that again. And that's voices of protest and resistance and bearing witness to the fundamental idea, and I'm sorry to say this in Hamilton's hometown, but fundamentally, that Thomas Jefferson had it right. (laughs) Sorry, Louise. Um, I could wrap this if you want. Oh, um, God. Please don't. <laughs> uh, when he said that all men were created equal. And America has been defined for the better the more generously we have interpreted that sentence. As a, as a practical matter, strongest nation in the world. We have immense long-term economic problems the culture is divisive, we're tribal, nobody really wants to listen to each other. All of that's true. But at the same time, people want to come here. And we're committed, by and large, we're committed to the idea of fair play and equality of opportunity. So the phrase is, as you point out often, a more perfect union, not a perfect union. And that we're always moving we think, in the we right hope. direction. We hope we're moving in the right direction. And it felt like, probably to most people in this room, like the country was. We elected our first African-American president in 2008. It looked for all the world and probably all the votes in this room like we were going to elect our first woman president yep. in 2016. And then we didn't. So I think to a lot of people it felt like, wait a minute, we're moving forward like that, and then we stopped dead in our tracks. Well, welcome to a fallen world, team. <laughs> Sorry. You know, Adam and Eve should have made a different decision. <laughs> the reality of history is it's not going to be totally smooth. Franklin Roosevelt, the you know, indicate Peabody, the great headmaster of Groton, said, there's a line in human affairs that has its peaks and valleys, but ultimately the trend is upward. But a trend is a trend. It's not inevitable. I, I think it is remarkable. I didn't think, again, I'm a, I'm a boringly heterosexual southern white man, so I didn't think that Barack Obama was going to win until, what was, what was the 800-point day? September 20th, something like that, September. 2008. Because I just, I, I, I believed, I just didn't think America was ready for someone named Barack Hussein Obama to be president. And it's remarkable, isn't it, how quickly our popular historical market, even, our, even in all of our very attentive minds to politics, discounts 
the very fact of Barack Obama having been president for eight years. It's kind of amazing. And I think, and people can argue this is digging for a silver lining unreasonably, Donald Trump's election, if nothing else, I think is a ratification of the fact that the country is inexorably changing demographically, culturally, and socially. This is the last gasp of the Strom Thurmond, George Wallace, white populist anger. Maybe the, it's, it's a close to last gasp. There might be some more gasps, but it's in the last three or four. Um, because the only way you could get such a ferocious reaction is if the evidence of the action were not so overwhelming. The strength of the backlash is an affirmation of the ultimate path here. We are not going to be a majority white nation for very much longer. It's a radically different. Uh, the, the, the generational question is fascinating here. Uh, the millennials, and I've met one. Um, <laughs> Random House actually hired one for me to talk to. Um, How'd that go? Not well. No. Not well. Um, <laughs> the one they sent me was... Um, the one. We were... Uh, it was, no, it was good. I think they have a, they have a factory. Uh, it's organic. Uh, I, I made an allusion to, 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 I said, well, you know, this, we're going to do a show tonight. It's going to be a conversation like Carson. Mm. And she said, oh, Carson Daly. I love him. <laughs> so, get out of your booster seat. But um, Carson Daly's a great man, by the way. Oh, yeah, we're all for Carson Daly. Boy right there. Yeah, there. go ahead. Um, so it's, it's changing very, very rapidly. The, the strength of the reaction is affirmation of that. And, you know, I, I think the other thing that I think is really important, and this is kind of painful for us to conjure with, but I think we have to do it if we're going to be honest. As Eleanor Roosevelt said, the most important thing to do is to face facts. Politicians are far more often a mirror of who we are than they are a molder. We get, as Harry Truman once said, the presidents we deserve. And it may be uncomfortable to think about, but there's something about where we are now that we're more like a reality TV show than we might want to admit. And it's it's an unhappy thing to say. St. Augustine, which has now been mentioned twice, so that's good. Um, (laughs) It's just another Wednesday. Um, Once defined a nation as a multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. I'm going to repeat that because it's so good. A multitude of rational beings united by the common objects of their love. So what we have to ask is, as a nation, what do we love in common? And right now, we don't love enough in common. We are too tribal. We pick and choose the facts we wish to acknowledge as facts. But at our best, and I would say one of the great hours in American history would be this very month in 1945, not just because Bill Geist came into the world. Uh, that, was a, that was a manifestation of, of, of the experience of the Second World War. Was it perfect? No. There was one executive order to try to uh, integrate war industries that Eleanor Roosevelt pushed her husband uh, to sign. 
but the military was still segregated. The internment of Japanese Americans is one of the great stains in American life. Franklin Roosevelt saved democracy except for that. It's a big except for that. But we're kind of an an and yet country. We'll do something, we'll do something and you know, something great, we'll fight for freedom around the world, we'll project force to establish liberty in other lands, and yet we won't live into it fully here. And I think what, the, what we have to be about is, let's see if we can reduce the number of sentences in the and yet paragraph that they write about us. So there's a school of thought that says that Donald Trump is sort of an aberration, that, that the planets aligned that week even, you know, in, in November. I think of, more as a meteor. But yeah. in, in November of 2016, and that he wasn't representative of, of where, the, where we're headed, That's but true. that he was a moment in time. Well, he's do a, you believe that, or do you believe that he is a signal of something that will come in the future as I well? Th- I, I think it will inevitably recur, because, again, it's, it's just a difficult world. There are recurrent patterns. Richard Hofstetter called it the paranoid style in American politics. Racism, sexism, selfishness, greed are endemic in many ways to the human condition. The remarkable thing is that we have, by and large, managed to do as well as we have. Uh, Again, this is a white guy saying that, so take it for what it's worth. But all in all, uh, people would rather be here than not be here. Do I think Trump is an aberration? I think he's a, a manifestation, a personification of unattractive forces in the national soul. That's why I say that, you know, there's, there's, not, there's not some pure America and then we have these moments where things, that somehow we're taken over, we're, we're, we're hijacked. Uh, there's a drive-by shooting of some kind. We have to, I think, be honest that not quite as often as not, but damn near, we get it wrong. And if we don't acknowledge that, then we can't be armed to figure out when that is and get it right. So to anesthetize ourselves by saying that Trump is an aberration is, I think, a kind of false reassurance. Um, But did he, John, tap into not only the vein of all the things you've been talking about, which is economic problems, but also racism and all those things, combined with him being incredibly famous and being a household name and being a a guy who does branding, a guy who could sell himself as a product. In other words, we've seen some like low-level Trump guys who've run in the last year in special elections and primaries who haven't won because they thought they had the Trump thing, but they didn't have the other part of the Trump thing. It, it is a remarkable, again, if you're for Trump, it's an alignment of the planets. If you're not, it's a devastating, world-ending meteor attack. Uh, <laughs> you know, honestly, Hillary Clinton may have been the one Democrat he could have beaten. Um, and I say that not because of Secretary Clinton herself, but because there were 10 presidential elections between 1980 and 2016, and a Bush or a Clinton was on 80% of those tickets. That's, that period mirrors a stagnation in wages that is part of, I think, the two numbers that tell us largely why he's president. 
One is, and I just realized this the other day, one is $130,000, but it's not that $130,000. There's another so, one? So don't get too excited. Um, honestly, I, I, I've said it's, it's, it's a true number, and it just so happens. Uh, that is the number that uh, the Commerce Department estimates it costs to pay porn actors. No. Uh, um, I have another quick question. Why is it always a porn star? Why are there no porn-supporting character actors? <laughs> Willie, tell me why. Well, we're on C-SPANs here tonight, so I'm not oh. going to answer, but I'll tell you when we get off stage. Okay. I think, I... in her defense, I think she is a legitimate star. She's been decorated. She's won all the awards. <laughs> yeah, at the... Yeah. I, so I, no, I, I... In her case, it applies. Okay, excellent. But uh, you were saying something about FDR. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about John Tyler, Willie, is... Um, so $130,000 is what the Commerce Department estimates a family of four needs to lead a classic post-World War II middle-class life. Household income is about $57,500. So in that gap, you have room for a populist insurgency. The number that scares me even more is that 17% of Americans trust the federal government. That's down from 77% in 1965. Hmm. So we've gone from more than three out of four Americans to fewer than one in five. And so what happened, I think, is to some extent, I think enough voters in the right states said to Washington, you know, if you're going to act like a bunch of professional wrestlers, we'll send you one. (laughs) And I think he's president, not least because everybody talks about Twitter for understandable reasons. The real vernacular he mastered in the same way Franklin Roosevelt mastered the radio and Kennedy and Reagan mastered television, is the vernacular of reality TV production. He announces things. He builds suspense. He pits characters against each other. I'm announcing the Iran nuclear deal at 2 p.m. tomorrow, you know, from his account, you know, and you can hear the music coming almost. Um, You know, to the Ayatollah, you're fired. You know, and... I didn't know. I'd never watched The Apprentice. One of the one of my many. Sure, go ahead. No, I. <laughs> now keep I'm li- his highbrow credentials. Yeah. He watched. Okay, go ahead. Now I'm living in it. <laughs> uh, like all you were sort of trapped in this endless loop. Uh, it's like the, as if the Truman Show were a horror movie, right? <laughs> um, so, I think that he understands where a huge amount of the country is culturally, in a way that this go. Honestly, probably probably does not. Um, you asked a second ago about about you know have we, uh, historical precedents. Uh, Trump wants to be Andrew Jackson, and not many people do. So I'm kind of that you know. Um, and he was coming down to the Hermitage. Uh, the man I he hadn't actually he doesn't know much about Jackson. Uh, I know that'll shock you. Uh, <laughs> I, um, I went to interview him in May of 16, and um, we were actually together that morning. And um, I was, went over, we were talking about, I was talking to Trump about history and how he was thinking about becoming president. It was a brief conversation. <laughs> uh, but one of the things, the man I called, now referred to as the late Steve Bannon, uh, <laughs> gave him this Jackson analogy after the election. And he put the portrait up in the Oval Office and all that. And in March of this last year, uh, 17, he 
came down, Trump came down to Nashville where Willie was educated. It's kind of the Bethlehem of the Geist dynasty. Yes. Um, Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. I'll explain that later. <laughs> uh, to um, lay a wreath at Jackson's grave. And it was 250th birthday. I'm sure you all had a paintball duel up here or something. Um, and so I was sitting at home and where I live, and I was thinking, all right, I should do, I should do something. So I wrote an open letter to the president saying that if you're going to embrace Jackson, don't just embrace the crazy parts, right? Uh, Jackson, and Jackson could be crazy. He once said that his only two regrets in public life were that he had not hung Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, and shot John C. Calhoun, who was, Calhoun was his own vice president. <laughs> we now know that no one felt that way about their running mate until John McCain. <laughs> so, so, but Jackson, I think, was a more sophisticated political actor. He believed in the union. He believed that we were one great family. And he was a good negotiator. He understood his vices. So I wrote this letter saying, if you're going to embrace Jackson, embrace the whole Jackson. It ran on the front page of the Tennessee and the local paper. It was the only thing on the front page that day. Uh, had no effect, whatever, of course. But, um, but just parenthetically, so the, the true story, the next day I was walking into lunch, and my cell phone rang. And it was my most recent subject. It was George H.W. Bush calling. And he'd been in the hospital a lot last winter. So I answered, of course. He said, how you doing? Uh, the key to doing George H.W. Bush, as Dana Carvey once said, is Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne. Um, <laughs> so I said, how you doing? I said, I'm fine, Mr. Fred. How are you? He said, I'm fine. He said, I, he said, I read your letter to Jackson. I thought, you know, the old boy's losing it, right? He's 92. He's been in the hospital. He thinks I'm writing letters to dead people, you know. So I said, Mr. President, thank you. It's great to hear from you. You know, actually, it was a letter to Trump about Jackson. And he said, yeah, but Jackson will pay more attention. <laughs> so he's fine, if you're worried. You'll hear from, he's home. You'll hear from him again, I'm sure. That's right. Uh, so the question a lot of people are asking now is, if you look over the horizon to the post-Trump era, um, whether it's three years like or seven <laughs> years or whatever it is, how do we put this thing back together? And Because you, you write about how others have put it back together yeah. in America when it felt like it was not going to be put back together. When we're running to our ideological corners, yeah. when we're calling each other names we've never called each other because of politics, how do you bring it back together after Trump? I don't want to Mario Cuomo you here, but I, I want to pick apart the premise a little bit. Yes, please. Um, we have called each other horrible names forever. And it's, it's almost more the rule than the exception. What feels different is that we're reading them in our pockets. We're reading them right in our face. Mm. And that's more visceral, right? And one of the things techno technology has given us multitudes, as Whitman might say, but it has also created the capacity to express an opinion quickly, even if we don't have an opinion worth expressing quickly. <laughs> and I think that's, that's a big question. I think it does require a kind of personal discipline and dignity. Uh, there is, I was thinking about 1968 earlier today for some reason, and there were 46 U.S. combat deaths a day in 1968, 50 years ago. The year opens with Tet. Johnson gets out of the race on March 31st. Dr. King is murdered on April 4th. Senator Kennedy is murdered the first week of June. The year ends with George Wallace winning 
13.5% of the popular vote in five states. So you, if you look at 1968, it's kind of the year that everything fell apart, right? That's kind of the popular memory of that. So how did, how did that, and then, then it's followed by Watergate. But then, whether you agree or disagree with them politically or not, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, that was a period of relative presidential stability and enough prosperity that we were able to make strides uh, with the role of women, with making sure the civil rights movement didn't fall apart. Um, And so leadership, depending on who rises uh, to prominence, will be important. But it's also our dispositions of heart and mind. A republic is only as good as the sum of its parts. That's the nature of a republic. From from Plato through Machiavelli to to Madison, this idea is we are able to self-govern, but what we are governing is the result of our hearts, our minds, our willingness to extend a hand as opposed to clenching a fist. And so it's going to get put back together, I think, in part because... Even if you're for President Trump, you are not happy with the way things are going on in the country, or else you wouldn't have voted for him, honestly. So I think that that, I think people who have supported him, I bet there ultimately is erosion because of this cultural chaos. Um, And I think the people who, I'm sorry, the people who support him, I think there will be, and the people who oppose him have not been as invigorated since the 1960s. It's, it's kind of a golden era of protest and resistance. I, these young people down in Parkland, in Florida, on the gun issue, they could be the John Lewis and Diane Nash of the civil rights movement of our time. It's, it's certainly possible. You know, the, the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of women who have engaged. Uh, you know, there is something in the American tradition where we careen from guardrail to guardrail. I'm trying to imagine a set of more different people than these. George Herbert Walker Bush to Bill Clinton. Remember, uh, Clinton goes on Arsenio Hall, right? Bush thought Arsenio Hall was a building at Yale. <laughs> Bill Clinton to George W. Bush. Two sides of the baby boom, totally. George W. Bush to Barack Obama, which I would have thought was the starkest move until we went from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, which in many ways disproves Darwin. (laughs) So what does that tell us? Trump's successor, Aristotle, is on his way somehow. (laughs) Oliver Wendell Holmes, you said, is next. Is that what I said? Yes, one of them. So John and I were on the air this morning on Morning Joe, and Michael Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' attorney, was on with us. He had the, produced the document that showed that right. Michael Cohen's shell company had received $4.4 million worth of payments from Novartis and, and AT&T. And I we, need a shell company. Yeah, you do. You do. So we, we do the segment. We ask all the questions, and Michael Avenatti walks off the set, and John and I just looked at each other, and John was shaking his head, and he goes, can you believe this political culture right now? That was the attorney for a porn star that the president is alleged to have paid off. And we're sitting there getting some guidance from him on his research on what happened in the Russia investigation. (laughs) 
And we've taken it for granted now because it's all come so quickly and we've sort of marinated it. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's insane. I said to Avenatti, I said, do you fancy yourself Archibald Cox or Joseph Welch? Because in a tabloid era, he's basically this remarkable figure. Um, And it is crazy. to some extent, though, there's a great question, and we don't know the answer yet. We'll probably debate it as long as the English language is spoken. Uh, is Trump a cause or an effect? Probably both. Probably both. And probably more an, ef- more an effect than we want to acknowledge. Um, but the, 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 the argument, the, the president, I think, is, is not Jackson, is, is not the analogy. Andrew Johnson is probably the closest. Um, <laughs> Honestly, because he was someone who did not have a natural political base. He was a Democrat who was put on the ticket in 1864 in that difficult wartime election. By the way, when you worry about American resilience, it's amazing to think that we had a competitive, open presidential election in the middle of a civil war (laughs) and that Lincoln was fully prepared to step down if McClellan won. Just incredible. Um, it was just assumed we would have it. Not even a big debate. So when you go home and you find out that he's fired Melania or whatever he's doing, <laughs> remember that. Uh, <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> it's, you know what? It's possible. You know? Everything's on the board right you now. Everything's you, on the you board. Really make it up. You know, one of the things you do talk about, though, is the, the institution's holding up by and large over the last couple of years and you said you know the the founders would have been surprised that it took this long to get somebody like Donald Trump into the office and they designed the document for precisely this kind of a president they 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 were really worried about the Aaron Burr was kind of the Trump of their era uh to some extent and um uh did I tell you my Christie story about that no oh this is a good one um <laughs> hey y'all um <laughs> So when I was out talking about Thomas Jefferson, uh, I got a call from Chris Christie. This is before he became Patty Hearst. Uh, and he said, I want to talk to you about Jefferson. Will you come to lunch? And Christie's great company. You know, he's a great, funny guy. So absolutely. So I went to Trenton, and we sat around. And he said, well, you know, I'm really more of a Hamilton guy. And usually that means you're an investment banker. Uh, and I wasn't really thinking. I just sort of said, well, that's great, Governor. But, you know, at least my guy didn't get shot in Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> the damnedest thing happened. I couldn't get back into the city. The bridges were all... <laughs> uh... um... What were you we talking about? He's been using Bridgegate humor for a couple of years now. I know, I know. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to allow it. Let it go. It. I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. But uh, we're just talking about the institutions holding. The institutions holding. The... One more point, just rattling around about Joe McCarthy. Um, Joe McCarthy... One month after the fall, the McCarthy hearings, Joseph Welch saying, have you no decency, sir, at long last, the censure happens. Prescott Bush and others finally followed the lead of Margaret Chase Smith. It was, a, it was a Republican woman, senator from Maine, who first laid out the case against McCarthy in 1950, Declaration of Conscience. She, got, she only got six co-signers in 1950 against McCarthy. McCarthy dismissed them as Snow White and the Six Dwarves. Hmm. Sounds like a tweet, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. McCarthy rode a wave of new media. Five million television sets in 1950. 31.5 million 
1954. He wrote it up, and then it turned around and got him. There's a lesson there. Uh, Roy Cohn wrote a very good book, or at least published, I don't know if he wrote it, uh, uh, on McCarthy in 68, in which he said, quite honestly, that he thought McCarthy's fall was a result of the American audience's inability to sustain interest in hyperbole. That ultimately, the, the, the audience got tired of the show. And I think, I firmly believe, that President Trump does not think of us as a country or a nation in the sense, that Augustinian sense I mentioned. I think he thinks of us as an audience. And he's keeping us entertained, and he's trying to keep us in the seats. But I don't think it's, it's going to uh, happen. So you can get 34% of the people, which was that McCarthy approval rating, to say damn near anything. We're really, lo- we're really looking at a, a, a center of about 20% to convince them that we're stronger the more generous we are. Um, okay, we've got audience questions. Thank you. These are really good questions. I'm going to whip through a few of them in our remaining time. Here's one. Uh, it reads, it seems that in every generation there was a leader who represented our better angels, JFK, MLK, RFK, etc. Do you see someone out there who could be that leader in the years to come? It's a great question, and I don't want to get into listing names, partly because it's what Donald Rumsfeld would have called a known unknown. Uh, when you think about the last set of uh, presidents, actually, three years out, you wouldn't have bet that they were going to be president. Uh, Obama, uh, Bill Clinton didn't announce until November 91, partly because uh, he was afraid of Mario Cuomo, for one thing. Cuomo decides not to run. President Bush's numbers are, are, are very high. Um, and the other thing about political culture is with a few exceptions, uh, Ronald Reagan being the most significant one, actually, we do tend to favor those who seem newer to us. Reagan ran three times, which is pretty remarkable, uh, before he won. 1980 was his third run. He made a very serious run in 68 at the convention to try to stop Nixon. And you can imagine how much Nixon liked that. Uh, But Carter was a new face. George Bush had not run as a national candidate. Uh, George W. Bush, first time he ran, he won. Bill Clinton, first time he ran, he won. Obama, first time he ran. Trump, uh, Jack Kennedy. Uh, So there's there's something, Eisenhower. Um, So these figures are on the edge of our consciousness. History tells us they emerge fairly late in the game, uh, in a cycle. But... You know, as Bismarck is alleged to have said, for some reason, God loves drunks, little children, the United States of America. You know, we've been lucky enough to have the right person at the right time, and I'm confident we will again. Got your Bismarck quote in. Nice job, buddy. (laughs) Proud of you. That's a $5 bet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here's an interesting question. You'll get nothing and like it. Here we go. You write in such a compelling fashion about moments in history, so... There's usually a but after that. Just a so, actually. So, if there were a time capsule and you could travel back in time, where would you go? To which era? This is going to sound really weird. It's a great question. I would go to Jerusalem in the spring of 33, and I'd want to see what happened. Why was he arrested? 
Why did, why did the Romans crucify him? Why did they go to that much trouble? Where was he on Sunday? Um, and then I would come back and make a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> More of a commercial enterprise than anything else, isn't it? God and mammon, baby. <laughs> Um, how does today's fake news epidemic compare to the lies and propaganda in Germany during World Wars I and II? Oh, I, I, I have a, an, an aversion to, to those analogies because um, uh, I don't think we have to go there to be worried. Hmm. Um, I think that this is a dictatorial maneuver. You try to discredit the messenger because you're never sure what the messenger is going to show up with. The attacks on Mueller, the attacks on Comey. I mean, again, this is not speculation. He told Lester Holt. People keep saying, oh, I wonder if he's going to answer a subpoena about why he fired Comey. He told Lester Holt why he fired Comey. <laughs> and I don't think Lester has subpoena power. I mean, <laughs> uh, maybe in the building. I don't know. But um, it is, I do think the fake news attacks, and not just because of what I do for a living, are among the most pernicious because... In many ways, I'm going to be sentimental for a second, but I, I believe it. So, um, In many ways, the American Revolution is the greatest manifestation of the conviction that reason has a chance against passion in human affairs. The shift from hereditary power in the late 18th century, from kings and princes and prelates and popes, who by an accident of birth or an incident of election had control over the destinies of others, to a, from that vertical understanding, that shift through the American Revolution, through the Scientific Revolution, through the European Enlightenment, through the Protestant Reformations, through this translation of sacred scripture into the vernacular, to a more horizontal understanding. The idea that kings and popes and princes couldn't tell us what to think, but that we were all born with the capacity to think what we wanted. That shift of which the American Revolution was the clearest political embodiment, is, I think, the most significant shift in Western culture since Constantine converted to Christianity. And we're still living with the digital revolution in a chapter of that story because it's about the diffusion of power from the hands of the few to the hands of the many. The digital world is faster, but there's a line between what's happening in your pocket with your phone right now, and what Gutenberg was doing 500 years ago, and what Henry VIII was doing, and what Martin Luther was doing. It was about a move from collective, individualized authority to elective choice and being able to determine your own destiny. And if you argue that you intrinsically cannot trust that which is reported and that which you are taught, then you are foreclosing the capacity, the possibility of reason to direct human affairs insofar as it can. And I think that's the pernicious thing about attacking journalists, attacking stories that you simply don't like. Well, that's part of my concern when I ask you about putting it back together, is that there's a large percentage of the country that believes if it's in the New York Times or on NBC News or on CNN that it's fake, that it's garbage, that it's not true, it's not to be believed. Consider the source. I don't know how you undo that. Like, they're suddenly post-Trump going to say, you know what, I'm going to renew my subscription to the Times. Everything's fine now. Yeah. That's a tough one 
Yeah. That's a tough bit of toothpaste to put back in the tube. But what if they throw in a mug? Um, Tote bag. No, I think that's right. But I, and I'm not sure this is an answer to it, but it might be at least a part of it. Again, it's not entirely Trumpian. Remember, the first target of this was Dan Rather, right? The Republican, uh, Roger Ailes uh, and others, uh, were quite brilliant at turning CBS News into the voice of the left-wing establishment. They raised a lot of money on direct mail off, you know, don't believe it if Dan Rather tells it to you. Um, So I think the crisis in media trust is of a piece with the crisis that we talked about, about a lack of faith in the government itself. Uh, The only institution that does pretty well is the military, um, and I, I, I suspect that's more sentimental and guilt-driven because so few of us serve, so few of us have connections to those who serve. So we can make ourselves feel better on a survey by saying, yeah, we trust them. They're, they're, they're heroes. But Congress is below the margin of error. Um, the media is close. Um, at one point, late in the Bush administration, I think Dick Cheney had an approval rating that proved that more people disapproved of him than actually lived in America. <laughs> um, and he loved it, by the way. That's right. <laughs> um, here's an interesting one for a Southern boy. Yep. What is your opinion about the removal of historical statues, which are offensive to some, sacred to others? I have a very nuanced position on this, uh, and, a, and a deeply felt one. Um, my view is that in public places of veneration, courthouse squares, courthouse lawns, uh, state capitol buildings, whatever, whatever, a public place. The test should be, did the person being commemorated devote themselves to the constitutional experiment in seeking a more perfect union? If they did, but if they had other significant sins and issues, like Jackson, like Jefferson, like Washington, all of whom were slave owners, all of whom were wildly imperfect men. But they were devoted to seeking that more perfect union. And I think that that is a legitimate act of commemoration. I do not believe that officers or elected officials of the Confederacy belong in public spaces because they took up arms against the Constitution and attempted to stop the experiment from continuing. Uh, I think schools, private schools, churches, homes, that's a fight for them. Uh, I don't think we should be in the business of dictating to private institutions from some sort of centralized commemoration police. But we should have centralized commemoration police about public places. And so, I, for instance, there's a bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest in the Tennessee mm-hmm. Capitol. It drives me crazy. Um, and I... I don't think there are many Lee statues of the issue. But, but Robert E. Lee, and you'll get Robert E. Lee people who say, oh, you know, he was about reconciliation. Well, yeah, but that was only because he lost. <laughs> right? You know, if day two at Gettysburg had turned out differently, I don't think he would have been for reconciliation. Um, we've talked about this on the show and a little bit off the show about the hopes you may have had for Donald Trump, whether or not you supported him, what he could have been 
as a president in terms of being the deal maker who would take pleasure in having Schumer and Pelosi in his office and, and cutting a deal and being sort of the New York Democrat and real estate guy that he is and he hasn't turned out to be. Is there still hope for that president to emerge or is it too late? Uh, if I, I, of course I have hope. It would be intellectually dishonest and a repudiation of everything we've said the last 52 minutes or so if I said that, oh, no, it's inevitable that he can never get better because we're all imperfect. Uh, we're all driven by a multitude of forces, and sometimes we get things right and sometimes we get things wrong. Sometimes we get things wrong. So, of course, there's hope. And we were talking about this earlier today. Um, if you want to see a glimpse of... I didn't think that Trump would be a tragic figure because tragedy implies that there was a capacity for greatness. Um, in an, I don't mean to be funny, but an Aristotelian... Right, right, Richard Nixon was a tragic figure, right? Uh, Trump is more like... Trump isn't Henry V. He's Falstaff. Um, and... But, and I thought that absolutely, I was totally convinced of that until a couple of weeks ago when I, there's a piece of tape, piece of video. Uh, remember that meeting he had with the congressional leadership and Mike Pence after the Parkland shootings about guns in the cabinet room? Mm. If you haven't seen it, go look at it because it's a time capsule. It's a glimpse of what might have been. Mike Pence opens the meeting. Diane Feinstein's sitting right here. Hmm. Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania is over here. Pence is here. Trump is here like this. And that's always kind of a dangerous tell, actually, mm -hmm. uh, when he does that. Um, and Pence kind of gives these NRA talking points. And Trump says, no, no, we're not going to do that. We've we, we got to get the guns. If there's a, you don't worry about due process. If somebody thinks somebody's a threat and the NRA wants you to go get a warrant, no, you're going to get the guns. He said, I like to get the guns first. I want to get the guns first. Yeah. Due process later. Yeah. Uh, he said, Pat, Pat, we're going to get, and, and, and Pence just shuts up because <laughs> he knows there's no percentage, you know. Uh, and he, he points to Pat Toomey, who looks as though someone has kicked him in the head. <laughs> he says, Pat, we'll get that in the bill, right? And Toomey's like. <laughs> <laughs> and Diane Feinstein's going. <laughs> <laughs> and it was this moment where I thought, you know what? This is the American fantasy. This is the Hollywood fantasy of Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Dave, remember, where there can be a president who is untethered to traditional special interests, who can actually just sit, as Willie says, apply common sense, cut through it all, and get things done. And it's striking to me that he hasn't done that more because... Not only is it the right thing to do, but it's good for him because, yes, he'll be president for four or eight years, presumably. Yet, yet, history is going to last a lot longer. And I think if I could talk to him, I would say, Mr. President, you love ratings. You love success. We're going to be rating you and judging your success for the rest of the life of the republic. And so what do you want us to think when we look at your portrait on the state floor of the White House? Do you want us to think this was an unconventional man who got extraordinary things done and people like us, people, I won't throw Willie in, people like me disdained you and thought you couldn't do it, but you pulled it together and, and became a unifying figure? Do you want that to be the story? 
or do you want it to be this was this ringmaster who came to town and didn't didn't change and divided us and, and kept us down and i think if you appeal you know you, you gotta as jim baker likes to say you hunt where the ducks are and if you're talking to someone who's self-absorbed appeal to their narcissism use it leverage it we learned that from the saudis when they projected his face on the side of his hotel yeah. And they got exactly what they wanted exactly, out of them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, it's like the bat signal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty good place to end. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John Meacham. Thank you, my friend. Down? For you, John, or is it for me? I don't know. Thank you. Well, good evening, everyone. We also do bar mitzvahs. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Anything else? No, okay. Weddings, okay. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory or visit us at nyhistory.org.